Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's Friday, March 11th, 2016, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Indre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, and on Twitter at Inquiring Show, and on Facebook. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for a month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. What is the most deadly animal to human beings? Oh boy, I would think maybe some bacterium. Oh, well, that's a stretch calling a bacteria an animal. <laughs> okay. So you're talking about something that actually has, you know, a bunch of legs and walks around on the earth? Is that, is that your definition Close of animal? Close enough, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, I don't know. Maybe there's some venomous snake or spider. Not even close. It's something so much more common than that. It's the mosquito. What? And I hate I hate mosquitoes. They're a huge nuisance. I'm actually pretty allergic to mosquito bites. And uh, so mosquitoes might be the pest that I'm ready to eradicate. And here are the numbers. They actually kill up to 725,000 humans a year. Wow. Uh, Bill Gates has declared open war against the mosquito, mainly because the diseases and the parasites that they carry uh, range from malaria and dengue fever and yellow fever and cephalitis you know, the West Nile virus, and now Zika. And most of these cases, we're talking about just a couple species of mosquitoes, too. Uh, The Aedes aegypti and the Aedes albopictus mosquito. Wow, that did not come out well, but we're going to go with it. It, That's how much I hate mosquitoes. I'm getting angry at the words, and I can't pronounce the species names. So here's a thought. What if we could wipe all of them out? That sounds like it might be good for us for the time being, but what about all the animals that thrive and live on mosquitoes? But seriously, we could get rid of all of them, all the mosquitoes, no more mosquito bites in the summer. That wouldn't be, that uh, sounds pretty good. This is actually a a raging scientific discussion. Now, no one is ready to actually uh, undertake this project as stated, but there is a lot of discussion about what is the ecological importance of mosquitoes, which has been called into question you would think that maybe bats feast on them and other creatures, but there's not great evidence that that is true, especially with some of the species we talked about, which are invasive in many of the uh, nations which where they infect a lot of people. So I decided to uh, take matters into my own hands a little bit. I called up a distinguished professor of molecular biology and biochemistry, Anthony James at UC Irvine about how we are taking steps forward to potentially eliminate this threat. And he's using advanced genetic engineering techniques like CRISPR and others to potentially create a mosquito that would be sterile and never be able to reproduce, thus eliminating whole hosts of mosquitoes in one fell swoop. 
Well, I want to hear how that works in terms of, you know, just the introduction of a sterile mosquito. You know, how does that actually ensure that that mosquito, you know, thrives enough that it, you know, gets rid of the ones that actually can reproduce? So I want to hear about that part of it. But I must admit that if I never have to hear that annoying sound in my ear when I'm camping again, that might not be such a bad thing. Hey, we're talking about something that is the most deadly animal in the world. Bacteria aside, most deadly animal in the world. So that's going to be our interview this week. Indre, anything catch your eyes in the news? Oh, you know, a few things as a psychologist. Oh, this uh, is a tough week for you. <laughs> it was a tough week. Uh, as usual, uh, there are a few controversies out there. And so there are kind of two that I wanted to highlight. Um, one was we've all heard about the big uh, replicate reproducibility project. We've talked about it on the show a number of times. And just recently, there was a comment published in Science by Dan Gilbert and a number of other so- psychologists calling into question the the statistics of that particular paper, the one that showed that, in fact, only about 40% of the studies that they tried to replicate were successfully replicated. Um, And the comment from Gilbert and colleagues essentially suggests that if you try to do something and you don't necessarily use the best methods or you don't really have contact with the initial authors, there are, in, in, you know, in essence, an infinite ways in which a study can go wrong and only a few ways in which it can go right. So, you know, in some ways, not just not being able to replicate a study, if you can show that that failure to replicate comes from just bad methodology, then that replication effort is meaningless, right? And I've heard this from a number of people whose uh, studies have, you know, we're, we're part of the reproducibility project. If um, you're a psychologist of, of significant academic standing, I understand why you would come out against that. I mean, this is a threat to your whole field to a certain extent. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Brian Nosek and colleagues who are leaders in the reproducibility project came out with a comment saying that, in fact, uh, this particular reanalysis of the reproducibility project paper also is flawed. And so there's some mudslinging going on. And is this a math battle? Are we having a full on <laughs> math battle here? Well, these are psychologists. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> And these are, you know, primarily social psychologists. So although they have you know, excellent math skills, um, we're not talking about, you know, a total computational battle out here. But certainly, you know, both camps some bring up some points that I think are worth listening to. But at the same time, there's also been some press about a paper that was presented so far at a conference and it's currently in press. So, you know, we have I have not had a chance to actually read the peer-reviewed version of it. But it's not out yet. It's not out yet. So, um, but already the press is talking about it. And and Daniel Engber uh, at Slate.com has written a really interesting piece about it. And this is a failure to replicate the ego depletion. This is a f- really famous psychology study. I mean, okay, so it's not one study. It's like 180 studies. Like this effect has been published, replicated a number of times. It's a 20-year-old finding that is a big idea in psychology. It's not just, you know, one single way. And it's been replicated using converging lines of evidence. So let me just tell you what the eagle depletion effect essentially is. It's this idea that we have a certain reservoir of willpower. And if we do something that uses up some of our willpower, then when we are faced with another task that requires willpower, we won't have as much left over, right? So the original study by Baumeister and Tice, you know, they had baked uh, cookies in the lab. And so the room was, you know, very aromatic of cookies. And they had people come in and they either ate cookies or they ate radishes. And the people who ate radishes, kids in particular, um, then found it more difficult to sustain attention on a doing a puzzle that essentially is impossible to solve. So they only spent like eight minutes doing the puzzle, whereas the people who ate the cookies spent like 19 minutes. So on you the just puzzle. gave up faster. <laughs> you gave up faster, right? So you <laughs> you lost your willpower faster. And, you know, then published, uh, you know, this, this particular effect of can if we do something to reduce your willpower, you then, you know, don't have enough left over has been pub, you know, replicated, published in a number of different studies over the last 20 years. So it seems like it's one of these well-established findings. So the paper that currently is in press uh, comes at uh, an attempt to replicate a paper from 20, 2014, 
And it, uh, the, the team that sought out to replicate it was actually in contact with Baumeister, the original, um, you know, in, uh, scientist who, who is, you know, the big name in ego depletion. And what they did is they used a, a task that's supposed to measure self-control. And the task essentially is involves people watching um, a series of words flashing on a screen. And they're asked to hit a key if the word that they're seeing contains the letter E. But only if the letter E is not within two spaces of another vowel. So, for example, they would have to say yes to a word like trouble, but they wouldn't they would have to, you know, stop that prepotent response when they see a word like level, which has two E's, but, you know, it doesn't have this other condition. And in the original study, uh, this kind of doing this task for a while uh, then led people to not do as well in a follow-up test, um, you know, that sort of, and that's sort of the ego depletion effect, right? Um, now, the replication team um, tried this effect again, and they used four, 24 different labs. Oh, so, so this is significant. Big, right? Something like 2,000 subjects. And again, remember, I actually haven't read this paper. I'm just reading Daniel Engber's report of the presentation at the conference, right? Um, but this is what, what, what apparently is is the case. Um, and when they pulled together all of those data, just two of the research groups produced a positive effect and that there was another uh, group that showed a negative effect and that when you take all of these replication efforts together, there's essentially a failure to replicate. That's a big deal let's just say yeah a, i mean it, question it, mark it is a big deal but i also think that it actually puts the lens on something really important when it comes to psychological studies for one thing ego depletion is a complicated concept right willpower is a complicated construct there are a lot of reasons why people have different amounts of willpower and what affects their willpower so there are a lot of variables to consider and in fact um, according to Daniel Engber, who wrote this article on Slate, he had a conversation with Baumeister, and Baumeister said that he actually would have handled the task differently. That's, you know, those are his words. And what he said he would do he would, is that he would first ask the subjects to pick to do a task in which they picked out any word containing the letter E, so that it becomes a habit. And once it's a habit, then you can add the second level where you have this prepotent response now ingrained. And now when you have this competing, you know, other um, rule that you have to follow that actually does involve depleting your ego, right? That actually does involve your self-control. And I see where he's coming from. Because if you don't deplete the ego enough in that initial self-control task, of course you're not going to find an effect. And this is a, a nice illustration of a lot of the criticisms that I'm hearing from other psychologists whose, you know, major studies were, you know, did not replicate during the, you know, one of some any of these big replication efforts. That you know, yes, it's not that ego depletion isn't necessarily a thing, but you ha when you're talking about something that has so much variability in the population and so much variability in a person's life and, you know, is, is a factor that you actually have to be pretty specific about how you design your study. So let's zoom out for a second, because this battle will rage about this particular topic for a while, it sounds like. Uh, what do you do if you're sort of like a governing body for this? If you're like a society of psychology and now your entire field is under attack in a lot of ways. Yeah. So is, there any, is there anything they can do to sort of standardize this? And I think there has to be a bigger focus on quality. Yeah. I think we have to get rid of this idea that publication is about quantity that you know sending you know getting the, uh, the your cv padded with a whole bunch of studies is really a good thing and that we really have to look very carefully about how people uh, in, you know, introduce their models or their hypotheses, how they design their research, and how they interpret their results. That really we should be looking at many, many fewer studies being conducted, but ones that are really thoughtful and not just like this massive rush to, hey, I got to get five papers out this year. So let's just throw a whole bunch of M&Ms and bowls and have a whole bunch of people come and like try to see what, you know, what statistics we can use to fish for some positive P, you know, results, right? That stuff is annoying and it doesn't get the feel anywhere well you heard it here let's do a whole lot less psychology <laughs> that's not what i said <laughs> i know that's not what you said that illustrates the point i let's think you're do trying it to make. better is what i is what i mean 
Well, I don't think this will be our last conversation on this. And you referenced P, which had a whole other big article about it this week in 538 (laughs) with a number of statisticians coming out about what they said about that. But that's for another show. Yeah. I mean, even, yeah, maybe we should forget the P's, right? Get rid of the P values. But we can still design really good studies that show interesting results that are thoughtful and, you know, enhance our understanding of the human experience. And if we're just continuing to pressure people to just pad 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 put out put out put out that's not going to happen so on that positive note let's say (laughs) yeah i think it is actually a positive note we'll take a short break we'll be back with my interview with anthony james on mosquitoes buzz This episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want, at any time, from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. They're offering Inquiring Minds listeners a new introductory offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for a month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library with courses taught by award-winning professors and experts from places like National Geographic, Smithsonian, the Culinary Institute of America, and even me. The Great Courses series are normally priced at two to $300 each, but now you can get unlimited access to the entire Great Courses Plus library, including my course, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus instructions to cook restaurant-grade meals in under 30 minutes, all delivered straight to your door weekly. These are chef-designed, restaurant-quality recipes, including rustic vegetarian tart with spinach, roasted red peppers and goat cheese, maple miso-glazed salmon with Brussels sprouts and apple, Parisian bistro steak and creamy potatoes with green beans. Oh, I'm hungry now. You get recipe cards with step-by-step instructions making cooking accessible. You'll be able to cook chef-driven, healthy, restaurant-grade dinners in a flash. These are nutrient-dense, perfectly portioned meals tailored to your unique dietary needs. No more waiting in line at the grocery store, planning out what to cook, and resorting to takeout. And each meal is under $10. Visit homechef.com slash minds and use code minds at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com slash minds and code minds. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Dr. Anthony James. You state pretty clearly that mosquitoes are arguably the most dangerous animals in the world. And we've heard a lot about 80s aegypti recently because it is one of the transmitters of the Zika virus. Is that correct? That's correct, yes. As far as we can determine, it's the principal vector right now. And in terms of these mosquitoes, do they have a native area that they, they, they're they sort of grown to, and have they spread beyond those borders? Yes, uh, Aedes aegypti is the one that originated uh, most likely in, the, in Africa and has spread uh, globally in the tropical areas. Um, and so it's pretty much an invasive species everywhere outside of Africa. Um, the second one that people are concerned about is one called Aedes albopictus, which has been given the common name of the Asian tiger mosquito. Um, that originated most likely in southern China uh, and along the uh, east coast of uh, Asia uh, and has also pretty much spread worldwide um, uh, in the last uh, two decades. So both of them are invasive species in a global context. And when you say invasive species, how long have they been invasive species? Are we talking on the order of decades, or has this been much longer timescale? Aedes aegypti actually had multiple introductions into the New World, for example. Um, It was known, its common name actually is a yellow fever mosquito, and it it was known as a very potent vector of yellow fever. It was uh, eradicated to a large extent in the 1950s, and 60s, um, and then was reintroduced uh, right after that. And so it's had multiple invasions. Aedes albopictus first showed up in the United States uh, late in the last century and um, has progressively made its way across the southern and eastern United States uh, all the way now up into uh, the extent of the Rockies and, um, and occasionally showing up in Southern California. Now, are all... Uh, of the species potential carriers for these these vector diseases, or are they 
Um, or do we need to single out specific elements within this species? That's that's a good that's a very good question. So, it, for example, there's only malaria is only transmitted by members of the Anopheles mosquitoes. So humans only get malaria from Anopheles mosquitoes, and then the viruses come from the other side, this Culicidae family and um, Culicidae family and uh, uh, Aedes and and Culex and, and a number of uh, mosquitoes and that that group um, actually transmit the viruses. So we see a, a reasonably good degree of whole specificity of the malaria parasites for Anopheles and the viruses for these for this other group. So traditionally, we've dealt with this through insecticides and trying to uh, control these with, you know, sort of anti-mosquito like DEET and, and other sort of uh, treatment regimens. Uh, but you're approaching this issue completely differently. Um, how are you trying to deal with suppressing the population of the, of these mosquitoes? Yes. Well, the, the key thing for the, the, the traditional approaches, which was to reduce the uh, probability of an encounter with a mosquito. So we call those population suppression technologies. And uh, for the ones that are transmitting the viruses, um, we pretty much look for where the animals are breeding and then um, uh, personal protection and trying to reduce them. Spraying doesn't work that well because a lot of these mosquitoes are actually indoors and people don't like to have their houses filled with, with, uh, with insecticides. So we were asking the question of whether or not genetics has some application or some utility in, in fighting these insects. And uh, we draw upon some of the earlier technologies where insects were irradiated and sterilized and then released, then that could cause population suppression. So that's one of the things that we're looking at, essentially genetic analogs to population uh, suppression technologies. And then the second area um, basically recognizes that it's the, the, the pathogens, the viruses or the malaria parasites that are the real target. And so we take um, genetic engineering technologies and take mosquitoes that would normally transmit a virus or a malaria parasite and, and make a new gene and put a new gene into them that actually prevents them from uh, 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 actually transmitting the parasite. So we're adding one extra gene to these insects. And that's a technology that's essentially called population modification. So it leaves the insects in place, but unable to transmit. So let's start with the the latter, the genetic engineering. Uh, what technology are you using to actually do some of the, the gene editing that we're talking about here? Right. So um, th we actually have three major um, technologies that we use. The, the first one is called transgenesis technology, and that's the sort of physical and genetic mechanisms that you use to actually put a new gene into um, uh, uh, any animal, but in this particular case, a mosquito. So we call that a transgenesis or transformation technology. The second technology is actually the genetic engineering of genes that, um, when they're turned on, actually interfere with the propagation or development of the parasites and the viruses. And so we use a very simple model of a gene uh, as having two parts a control region which tells you when and where and how much of something to make, and then the expressed or effective portion, which is what you make that actually interferes with uh, with the parasite or the or the virus. And so we, we build those things, and then we use the aforementioned transgenesis technology to actually place them into mosquitoes. So in the laboratory, then, we can build these strains of mosquitoes that have these genes in them. And, you know, once again, they were strains that normally would be able to transmit, but now we've added this extra gene and they can't transmit anymore. Um, and then the question is, how do you get it out there into nature in a way that's fast enough and efficient enough that you could actually see it, an impact on the epidemiology of, of the uh, vectors? And this is where the gene editing technology comes in. And we're not actually doing gene editing per se, uh, the way most people think about gene editing, but we're taking advantage of one of the properties of this new system um, that allows us to develop what are called gene drive technologies, which allow genes to be spread very rapidly, rapidly through populations. So it's the three, three key technologies, uh, the transgenesis, being able to put it in, having something to put in, and then finally having a way that once it's put in to have it spread uh, very rapidly through a target population. 
So has it been known for a, a while the the genetic uh, changes that need to be achieved to either uh, knock down the parasite or to uh, limit the ability of the mosquito to reproduce, and you're building upon that knowledge base, or is that still an ongoing piece of of work here? Well, there's actually two parts to your question. One is one is uh, making a mosquito that would be resistant, and and this is completely synthetic. Um, you know, we we made artificial genes that, when turned on, actually take out the parasites, and so um, that's new in the context of you know we had to think up how we're going to do that, how we're going to make that work. And so, so that's there. Um, and then the, the other question about knocking down their ability to reproduce, that's just a question of finding genes that, you know, when disabled in the mosquito, uh, w- would cause a, cause them not to produce, reproduce well. So, uh, there, you know, we know that those kind of genes exist. It's just a question of finding them. So it, it you know, I guess a, a direct way of answering your question is that, you know, we have these ideas, but the, the way we formulate them and put them together is fairly recent. Practically, how do you actually do this in the lab? Because I'm I'm really curious. Do you do this in a live mosquito? Do you do it what in the egg? That's an excellent question. Yes, we, we actually um, we have a, a very tiny needle and we inject the DNA that we made into the uh, it's essentially the mosquito egg, but, but the egg has been fertilized. So it's truly an embryo. And so we inject it into this little tiny egg. And for those of you uh, comfortable with the metric system, it's about a half a millimeter long by one quarter millimeter wide. So it's quite tiny. It's visible to the naked eye, but it's, it's, it's small. And so we have a needle that's able to do that. And we inject it into the egg, into the area where the future um, germ cells are going to form, and the germ cells are the ones that give rise to the sperm and egg. And so the reason that we want to do that, of course, is that we want this trait to be inherited in the next generation. So if we put it into the cells that are going to make the sperms and the egg, then, you know, we can pick it up in the next generation, and then it's then it's incorporated and maintained through generations. Uh, you led us into probably the biggest question is how effective can this be especially when you release into the wild uh you're probably doing pilot studies in the lab how let's start with the the basic question like how effective is this you know generation to generation in terms of the inheritance down i would imagine you need a really high percentage of that gene to be passed through to have any sort of larger scale effect yes and and we were very pleasantly surprised by the efficacy of the the um this new system this cas9 uh crispr cas9 system for the efficiency that it has in moving through uh, the population and it is such that if we cross a, a male mosquito for example that's carrying our gene with a female mosquito that um doesn't carry our gene 99 percent of the progeny have our gene so it's extremely efficient how did you actually prove that 99% of it was passing through? Were you sequencing all of the no, progeny? That's, that's a good question. So it, we, we take advantage of some genetic tricks. In our case, um, in, in addition to the genes that, that, that confer the resistance to the, to the pathogens, the viruses and the parasites, we put what's called a marker gene in. In this case, it's a, it's a gene that, that fluoresces red. So it's a red fluorescent protein and it's turned on in the eyes. And so, um, we can follow where our gene is by looking for this red fluorescence. And so we would do that, that cross I described, crossing a male that has our gene with a female that doesn't and look in the progeny and um, the progeny will all have these fluorescent uh, red eyes if we look at them under a, a fluorescent microscope. Okay, that's not fair because I'm allergic to mosquitoes and now I'm going to have <laughs> nightmares about red-eyed mosquitoes. But that that's really clever. Yeah. It, it it is kind of a scary image and and they're the the kind of red that was in, you know, the eyes of the terminator, but um but that's the, but uh yeah, you won't be able to see them unless you're sleeping under black light. So <laughs> having said that, that I guess a lot of people do, right? <laughs> yeah. So it can be pretty effective in terms of uh, passing down uh, the genetic traits uh, generation to generation. How quickly can this actually propagate across a mosquito population that's actually going to make a difference to infection rates? Right. So uh, it's important to understand that none of this has been done in open releases in the field. So the answers I'm giving you are based on modeling. And so uh, mathematical model that that you know take into uh, account the size of the target population are you talking thousands hundreds of thousands 
Um, and also take into account the release ratios, you know, for every one male that's out there, how many of your males are you going to release? But we can do really simple modeling and show that, um, if you do a release of say one of your mos male mosquitoes for every one that's in the wild in your target area, and we should get back to that actually, um, that you can see an impact and sweep through the population and, in less than, uh, or in a probably one season. All right. So year to year. And that represents anywhere from, say, four to six generations of, of mosquito life. Wow. That's much faster than I expected. Yes. Because in one season, um, it is only a few short months and in many places in the U.S. Um, it, when you're, t I mean, you led into this question as well. How do you d decide upon a, a target area? Because you're obviously not going to select, you know, North America as your target area for for doing this kind of thing. You know, if we got to the point where we tried this technology out in the wild, what is a reasonable target area to be considering for a project like this? Right. So, so that that's 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 a good question too. Uh, the, the so I think it's really important to emphasize that that. Um, that you know you don't really go for the endpoint when uh when you have a new technology like this you you want to roll it out in a way that uh allows you to test for uh unexpected outcomes and so we have a a phased approach to doing this where phase 1 for example is uh testing these insects in cages in the laboratory phase 2 is testing them in a field circumstance, but either in a large cage in the field or in a ecological environment where they're highly restricted. And, and most people think of islands. And so that's a good way of thinking about it. And that, that serves a number of, number of potential goals. One is to look at the scale up, see how well it goes from, you know, working really well in a small scale in a laboratory to progressively larger scales. The second thing is that it allows you to monitor for unexpected events that might occur. Uh, and it allows you to monitor in a way that, you know, I, I've been using the expression, you don't overdrive your headlights. That is that if something does happen, um, you're working at a scale where you can use a conventional technology, for example, insecticides, and come in and clear the area of all your released mosquitoes. So we're thinking about a scale up in that fashion. So in the laboratory, when we do trials in cages, for example, the cages probably carry you know, maybe at most 500 mosquitoes if they're really kind of large cages. Uh, as we scale up to larger cages in the field, they may go up into, um, you know, a thousand or so. And what's interesting is if you go and you sample population sizes in areas where these mosquitoes are problematic and say, you know, s small towns or small villages, we're, we're within that range of, of you know, at, at most several thousand mosquitoes that are our targets. And so the idea of being able to release a one-to-one -one ratio or even a 10-to-1 ratio to make it happen faster is quite feasible because we're only talking about rearing a few tens of thousands of mosquitoes. And that can be done fairly quickly it in can terms be done of rearing. Quickly. Um, you know, it requires uh, facilities and scale-up and monitoring, but but yeah, it's not something that can be, you know, it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't take years, you know, it takes, you know, it takes a few months to do that. This brings me to um, a question that sort of bandied about my head when I first heard about this area of research. You know, when we talk about um, uh, genetic modifications to to food supplies or to different structures, there's regulatory pathways in place, but it varies significantly country to country. What is that kind of situation, at least here in the U.S., where we where we live and work? So that's a, that's a, that's an outstanding question. And, and one, a point that I make many times when I talk to people about this is this is a brand new technology. And so the regulatory structure that, that you would expect, for example, when you develop a vaccine or a new drug or an insecticide or some chemical that you're going to put in the environment, that already exists for them. And there's once again, phase trials with specific go, no go. Uh, uh, criteria as you move from, you know, the laboratory or the, you know, into production out in the field. Well, this stuff is so new that that really doesn't exist in a, in a manner that has the benefit of the, you know, past experience of a lot of products being run through it. And so, um, working with the World Health Organization and colleagues in the community, we, we've attempted to come up with this concept of phase trials, uh, and, uh, what it would, what would be required for them. 
But until recently, we really haven't had a product, so to speak, that would be the lead product that you would drive through and, and, and not only test the product, but test the, 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 um, the phased aspects of it. So this is stuff that's ongoing now. The good news is that, you know, the scientists have been thinking about this for a long time. And so, um, it, it it's, uh, it's just a question of having all the, um, regulatory structures come in, in into play out around that. And then also, uh, you know, engagement with the community. I, you know, if this is something they, that people really don't want to use, then I don't see any advantages of trying to, you know, to force them to use it. So it has to be something that the public accepts as well as that the regulatory environment uh, will permit. And I, the issue you bring up is kind of the unanswerable question in this in this entire field, because a lot of times the uh, the areas that are most affected by uh, the these vector borne diseases are in you know, poor areas, lack of a better term, where um, we need to find effective um, introductions that aren't costly. Like we can't just spray, uh, do sprayings in all of these nations or ask people to apply insecticide to themselves. So is this even going to be cost effective to the point where it's going to be a consideration before we even start talking about if the community will accept it? Oh, yes. I think there's a lot of modeling that suggests that this is going to be highly cost effective. Uh, the, the, the strategies I talk about that leave the insects in place, um, you don't have to come back and reapply, so to speak. You know, you don't have to put on the, the, the repellent. You don't have to come back and spray. Um, you know, once the mosquitoes are released and they're all resistant, um, in, in principle, it's, it's, they're, they're self-sustaining. And so this is actually modeled to be highly effective and, and this will be very significant in the malaria eradication efforts. Um, so um, I think there's a tremendous cost benefit associated with this type of technology. So I'm going to ask you a couple unfair questions because you haven't done the pilot. So it's hard to answer some of the questions I'm going to ask you now. But there's there are certainly some risks with the technology that we're going to employ. There's going to be concerns, at least from a societal perspective, of how likely are any of these edits to um, uh, escape the mosquito species themselves? Is there any interbreeding that can... Uh, lead to the, the the genes leaving the the mosquito population at all is that even the right risk to be looking at or are there other risks inside your own head that you're really weighing as as being of, of deeply uh, of deep concern so I, th- this is a very good question so you get you get two different answers if you ask a scientist what the risks are um, the they'll just tell you well that you know the risk is that it won't work you know you go through all this effort and and it won't work but then you ask you talk to uh, the public and and other types of scientists and the 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 risk that the 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 single hazard I guess is the way to put it that they're most concerned about is a class of what would be called non-target effects so. Most people really don't care what you do to the mosquito, but they um, don't want to see any damage to anything else. And so, um, and this is why I call this technology genetic engineering and not genetic modification, because I'd like to imply with the engineer, using the word engineering, that some thought goes into this. So we can actually build genes whose, the, the DNA that's involved with them is from mosquitoes and it works only in mosquitoes. So if it were to get into some other animal or some other organism, it won't function because it's, 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 you know, it doesn't have the right lock and key mechanisms for turning on a mosquito gene. And so essentially they would be dead on arrival if they got into, um, another, another species. And in, in addition to the, uh, functioning of the genes, the sort of gene targeting that you get with a new CRISPR Cas9 system, um, we can send it to addresses, genetic addresses that only exist in mosquitoes. So in addition to only functioning in, in mosquitoes, you know, it can, it can only integrate or, or move into a specific address in a mosquito. So we can, I think, control a lot this, this concern about uh, moving from one organism uh, to another. The other concern has to be with, has to deal with, you know, what happens, you know, what happens with the people working with these strategies where they're trying to, you know, uh, suppress or eliminate mosquitoes, won't that leave an open ecological niche? So getting back to what we were talking about earlier in the conversation, in many places where, where these mosquitoes are a problem, especially the ones that are transmitting the viruses like Zika viruses, these mosquitoes are invasive species. So getting rid of them is actually restoring the environment to a condition, you know, it was before the mosquitoes actually showed up. So there's no uh, major um I think environmental impact, ecological impact based on that. Now, for ones that um, 
are in the local area and, you know, are, are supposed to be in that area. But this modification talk net technology that we were talking about, which leaves the insects in place, but changes their ability to transmit, uh, you know, gets around that concern there. So with, with the engineering concepts, I think we can design around a lot of the concerns that people have. Is there any uh, potential concern around resistance development, particularly in in regards to some of the viruses that we're talking about, we don't have a really good image of all the different strains. That's certainly true for Zika, at least. So is that an area that we can uh, mitigate in any way? Yeah, absolutely. And then another excellent question. And so the way we've gotten around, at least for our malaria work, is that we put in more than one gene to, to attack the parasite. And the idea is that if there was somehow resistance developed to one of the mechanisms, the chance that at the very same time, it would develop resistance to the second mechanism. The, that probability is extremely low, and, and we use that that type of approach today. For example, when treating um, infections with antibiotics, oftentimes people will get a, a dual antibiotic, or indeed a dual anti-malarial, with the idea that that um, it would be the the probability of of selecting for a, a, a resistant organism. Uh, to both of them at the same time is so low that it's that it, it's you know virtually impossible. So we we thought about that and and our approach is to you know use this dual dual gene approach. How aggressively is uh, the research and the implementation going forward? Given the the sort of societal interest, it seems like every year we have a new sort of um, vector borne disease that we're uh, that uh, emerges in the news. Uh, is this sort of in some sort of fast-tracked methodology here that we're going to see um, work on this really accelerate over the next few years, or are we really just progressing at the natural rate of the work? Well, you know, it, it's, it's sad to say, but it, it, it all comes down to um, the, the public's uh, feeling of the urgency of the problem and then the resources put into it. And so I anticipate that with the current concerned about Zika, that there will be some accelerated efforts. But once again, those efforts will be to develop things in the laboratory. They, there, there won't be any shortcutting in the test as things move to the field. I mean, it, w with a new technology like this, it, it's not a smart thing to try to rush it. So you want to be able to do it right. But I'm hoping that, that, that things will pick up because um, many of us have been championing these types of technologies for, for dengue. All right, for applications for dengue fever, which which is a disease which is much worse in adults and children than Zika is. Uh, you know, uh, eighty percent of the people who get Zika don't even know they have it. Uh, there's nobody who gets dengue who doesn't remember having it. You know, remember vividly having having dengue. So so um, you know, one of the sad things is if if there had been more effort to control dengue, uh, Zika would not be the problem it is. But hopefully, this will cause further uh, interest, additional interest, and additional investment in these technologies, and we'll get uh, we'll get a lot for the package. If, if we can get rid of, you know, Zika, we can, it's the same mosquitoes that have this, have uh, transmit dengue, and we can have, uh, um, we can have, you know, a multiple effect there. And, and sadly, there's been an outbreak of dengue in Hawaii. Of, in fact, uh, in fact, to be honest, I mean, Zika is scary. No question about it. I mean, you know, uh, basically you have a classic epidemiological situation where you have a whole hemisphere, which is the Western hemisphere that that's naive. We've never seen Zika before and it's now spreading through. And, and we have, uh, you know, people across all the age cohorts from old people to young people including, you know, pregnant women in the first and second trimester who are getting the disease. And we're seeing manifestations of that uh, in, in those pregnant women uh, and the children of those pregnant women. Um, and it's, you know, it's but what'll, you know, what'll happen with time is that, you know, everybody will have gotten it and then there'll be a type of herd immunity and um, the, the frequency of, of, of uh, those effects on pregnant women will decrease. Dengue, on the other hand, uh, you know, is, is the big giant at the door and uh, on a certain level, much more frightening than 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 um, than Zika. And uh, we're not doing a lot about it, which is really kind of sad. What markers are you specifically looking for that would that would sort of promise some success for our listeners out there? What should they be sort of listening to and paying attention for, especially over the next year? Right. So I think a couple of things. I mean, for Zika, you know, I, I, there's clearly going to be a rush to develop a vaccine. And um, 
and you know, I, I'm, I'm a big supporter of that. Uh, the sooner the better. But once again, it has to go through its, its testing and efficacy trials. And those take, those take time. And then the, the, the use of our technologies, um, the genetic technologies, I think people should pay attention to. In this case, um, looking for, you know, reports of, of new strains being developed and as they move from the laboratory to, to cage trials in the field. Once again, not open releases, cage trials, looking for that. But unfortunately, uh, this is all going to be a, a relatively slow process considering how rapidly, um, for example, Zika could be spreading. Well, here's hoping for that there'll be some acceleration of the next year with uh, great interest in the in, in this topic right now. Uh, I, I agree. I you know I um, it, it it doesn't help to you know do the I told you so stuff because it, it, you know the, you've got a problem today and you you need to be thinking forward on that and stuff. But once again, you know if we had if we had really paid attention and and been dealing with the threat of dengue, um, we wouldn't quite be in the situation we are now. And, you know, I'm, I'm very sympathetic to the people in Hawaii, uh, where, where, you know, this, this is, you know, it's, 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 it's kind of scary. And for them, uh, especially for the dengue. Yeah. Well, we're certainly going to keep an eye on this, on this research. Uh, Dr. Anthony James, thank you so much for joining us on Inquiring Minds. You're welcome. Well, that's certainly food for thought. <laughs> I, re- I mean, I know he was really cautious about utilizing the technology and the timeline, but I really want them gone. I do. Come yeah, on. I think I'm more in line with what you're <laughs> what you're suggesting at the moment. Um, and, you know, I think, I, I mean, if we can create some ecological models that are somewhat valid in which we can maybe predict the effect on the larger biodiversity of whatever. I mean, I think this idea of really targeting a particular area is a good one because certainly, and especially if it's an area that doesn't have a lot of, and I don't know what that would be, biodiversity that is perhaps in, you know, in, in danger of going extinct, right? Like I wouldn't want to do this in a place where there are 150 species of frogs that are all in danger. Of course. And and I don't want to sound, um, you know, too skeptical. I mean, there is the whole world of unintended consequences that we can't predict. And I'm not worried about the gene transferring to another animal or something along those lines, but there could be some pretty significant ecological impacts in ways that we haven't even thought of or predicted at this point. That being said, I don't know how much progress we're making on this. And like 700,000 people killed per year is still 700,000 people killed per year. And, and if you use the analogy of like, you know, how are GMOs really different from artificial selection, right? Here, yeah. the analogy would be, how is this idea different from other ways in which we eradicate pests, you know, by putting out pesticides or by, you know, in, introducing a predator or, you know, there's we've, we've done this through our history. Yeah. And there's lot. there's been places not I'm not um, worried about the technology. There's been places where that has unintended consequences on the larger ecology of a system. So, I mean, that's the only thing that actually gives me pause. But a but, little bit like the GMO story, though, sorry to interrupt you, this is also a very specific intervention, right? So instead of changing, you know, a whole number of genes the way you can when you do artificial selection, you're really just changing one, potentially, or you're changing, in this case, one particular species. And uh, so maybe that's a, it's a more targeted plan. It's It's certainly more economically efficient to target the mosquito than what we're doing right now, which is essentially treating the symptoms after it's been caught already. And in the case of Zika, that's going to be billions upon billions of dollars. So accelerating development of something like this is really interesting. Now, that all being said, you could hear it in the tone of his voice and and, and things. This ain't going to happen anytime soon. You, you just know it. Like there's going to be so much resistance, so much uh, public resistance that needs to be overcome. And while I laud his interest in engaging the community and doing that, that's a long process that doesn't always work as uh, rapidly as the disease are manifesting themselves. So what do you think we would need as a society to say yes to this? I, I actually think the place where this could happen is Hawaii, where it's a much more isolated place. There's a big outbreak of, of dengue happening right now. If there was a place that it could happen, it would be something like that. But the community distrust of science there is high. We've covered that previously on this show. Uh, So it'll be an interesting um, experiment on multiple levels. 
But I think some sort of controlled situation where we know there's a significant outbreak of disease related to this, especially with dengue, which is much worse than Zika in a lot of um, ways, uh, I think that's a place where there'll be a call and sort of a desire for the community to just wipe these out. And just traditional methods of, of control, just spraying, hasn't really worked that well. And, you know, if you use the analogy of, well, we do actually filter our water, in which case we are killing a whole bunch of bacteria. <laughs> so how is this really different from doing that if it leads to better hygiene? I don't know who you're trying to convince because I'm here. Like I <laughs> like I talked to a physicist once about the, the laser tracking system to like blow up mosquitoes out of the sky with lasers. And uh, so I'm all for this. Wipe them out. Wipe them out. I just am realistic that it's not going to happen anytime soon. I guess I'm going to have to live with my allergies just a little bit longer. So that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd also like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially Herring Chang, Nick Cadillac, Sean Johnson, Brendan Ryan, and our anonymous patrons. And once again, this episode is sponsored by The Great Courses Plus. The Great Courses Plus is a new video learning service from The Great Courses. With it, you can watch as many of their nearly 5,000 video lectures as you want at any time from anywhere. They have lectures on subjects like history, science, philosophy, or even photography. And they're offering Inquiring Minds listeners an offer to try The Great Courses Plus free for one month. That's unlimited access to the entire The Great Courses Plus library, all completely free for a month. To sign up now for your one-month trial, go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash inquiringminds. And this episode is sponsored by Home Chef. With Home Chef, you get all the fresh ingredients you need, plus chef-designed recipes, which let you cook restaurant-grade meals at home in under 30 minutes. Home Chef meal kits are less expensive than shopping for the same ingredients at a supermarket. Each entree comes out to less than $10, save time and money. Deliveries are weekly and right to your doorstep. It lets you cook dinner in 30 minutes with step-by-step chef-designed recipe cards. Visit homechef.com minds and use code minds at checkout for $20 off. That's homechef.com slash minds and code minds. Rediscover home cooking with Home Chef. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com and you can support us on patreon.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Jian. And we're your hosts. I'm Indre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Indre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Geach. See you next week. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.